Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. Hi. And this blessings. Is, and welcome to Dr. another Fo- installment oh. of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. I'm so happy tonight to be speaking with Dr. Lenora Fulani. Uh, She, if you had asked me the top three people, that I would have loved to interview, Dr. Fulani would be one of the top three. Because the first time that I was introduced to even who Dr. Fulani was, that she existed in the universe, was through a friend of mine who said, uh, I won't say his name on air, but he said to me, you should interview Dr. Fulani because a lot of people think she's controversial. And I said, ooh, I like that. <laughs> Because anybody who is considered in any way controversial in terms of mainstream America has to be doing something important, uh, especially when it involves political activism. So uh, she is an American psychologist, psychotherapist, political activist, probably best known for her presidential campaigns, which we will certainly talk about, uh, and the development of youth programs serving minority communities in the New York City area. Uh, In the United States presidential election in 1988, uh, heading the New Alliance Party ticket, she became the first woman and the first African-American to achieve ballot success in all 50 states. She received more votes for president in the U.S. general election than any other woman in history until Jill Stein in 2012. Uh, Dr. Fulani, what is the... The thing or the catalyst in your life for the mentoring that allowed you to be who you are. Hi, how are you? (laughs) I'm well. It's so good to be speaking with you. Oh, it's so nice. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, The catalyst, I mean, I grew poverty, basically. I grew up in Chester, Pennsylvania, which was poor and black when I was growing up, and now it's poorer and black. And I um, saw this the just devastation of my family, my community, things that were outside of our control. And, you know, one of the things that struck me is that in spite of all the suffering that I saw the adults in my family go through, nobody ever said, boy, this is so hard, there is so much pain. It was almost like people didn't feel like they had the right to express how unfairly difficult their lives were. So I got in, uh, that impacted me. I decided I was going to go to college. I was the first in my family to go and become a psychologist because I wanted to help deal with what all of this was about. I wanted to learn something about alleviating this kind of suffering. And then, I don't know, it took me just a moment to realize that there was a relationship between people's capacity to to be included in a society, to be operating in it, that it had it wasn't just personal suffering and psychology, it was social and it had to do with um politics. So I mm. went out and started working. <laughs> right. And, and do you remember your first sort of political movement or your first involvement in politics? Yes, primarily I went to college in 68, 69. I was involved in, even though most of the student movement was over, most of the 60s was over, um, I was active in the on-campus activities that we did. And at the same time, I went out and um, I went to uh, Hofstra University. It's in Hempstead, Long Island. And I went out into the community and met kids Um, who were black and Latino, who were having a very hard time, and I started tutoring them. And at some point, I started looking for people who were doing things outside of the box because I realized that traditional psychology barely knew who human beings were, let alone who who the black, poor, and Latino community was. And I I wasn't going to 
I made a decision I would learn enough to get a degree, to get a Ph.D., but I would never teach what I was being taught because I didn't think that it had a relationship, that it understood who the people were who I knew. <laughs> and I really mm-hmm. got politicized as a psychologist. And then I met uh, Dr. Fred Newman, and he was doing work in New York City um, in a variety of arenas and started working with people who wanted to build something outside of the two-party system. And that was like an education in and of itself because this country is so partisan and the parties are so dysfunctional. Right. Now, were you ever able to overcome the deficit in terms of financing for campaigns, or was it something that you struggled with and just just dealt with as the campaign rolled on? Well, my my campaign was unusual because I was working with a group of people who, um, I don't know, maybe 100 people, people who had come off of campuses in the late 60s, early 70s, who were looking for new ways to explore some of the kinds of things that I'm talking about. So when I ran for president in 88, a lot of how I got on the ballot and a lot of how I raised money, I qualified for matching funds. I think I was the first black and um, black woman to have done that. And But I had a lot of people working for me around the country. And that made a huge difference. That's why I was able to do the kinds of things that I could, because I was part of an activist grouping, still am. And, you know, we raised the money that we could. Qualifying for matching funds was very helpful because it helped us to get on the ballot in 50 states. But people got in cars. They drove from New York to Texas. They stood on street corners. (laughs) Texas was Mm -hmm. one of the last states we got on the ballot in because there are all these laws, for example, um, in order to sign a petition for a candidate then in Texas, you had to know what what the number was on your voting registration card, whatever that meant. And then each signature, and you had to collect thousands of them, had, you had to pay 10 cents per each signature you filed. So the whole system is rigged towards not making, to making it impossible for anybody who's not running as a Democrat or Republican to actually get access to the ballot. Right. Now, would you say that you are someone who typically works outside of the political establishment, uh, an outsider, for lack of a better word? Yes, I don't even know what the inside looks like. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and I, and I am I subconsciously outside of it, yes. That's great. And, and I ask you that because part of the, the friends that I have who, who work in politics, and I'm, and I'm somewhat politically oriented myself, even though not as much as I used to be, um, they, they say that government, uh, public sector opportunities, government agencies can't really advocate for the public in a neutral way because there's so much bureaucracy. In order to get something done, you have to go through 1,500 chains of command. But if you're in the private sector, uh, instead of 15 people, there's three people, and if you can get the majority of those three, change happens. Uh, Do you think that government uh, is is effective typically when it comes to programs, for example, social programs, youth programs, et cetera, because of the bureaucracy and the way that they run? Um, I think there is a lot of bureaucracy, but that can't be the answer of why they're not effective, because what it, you have to have a will, um, a desire, um, an interest in creating things that deal, for example, with the economic crises that we're currently facing in this country. I meet with families weekly where people are moved into shelters. They are, you know, closing down projects and sending people to the hitherlands. So I don't think it's just the bureaucracy. I think the political parties don't work in support of the people of this country. I think they're sort of like a self-contained operation, and they do the kinds of things that political parties do, which is uh, do everything they can to get elected. They rig the um, system and the ways in which redistricting is done so that their people get elected. But they don't have a passion, in my humble opinion, for dealing with the real crises in this country. Because if, in fact, you're in a bureaucracy and it doesn't work and you want to get something accomplished, then you should leave it. No, I I totally understand that point. And I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine uh, in southeast Queens. 
And there is, I, I don't know if you've been following the sort of political corruption cases that have been taken out specifically in that area. Well, they're um, all over but, New York City, but they, you can't avoid them. <laughs> yes, no, you can't. <laughs> uh, and there, there are elected officials out there, you know, who sort yes. of get, re- they, they get elected, but if you look at their record, they haven't been challenged in 10-plus years. Yes, uh, or more. And, and part of why they haven't been challenged is not because people aren't running, but the first thing they do when someone steps up to one is find a way to knock them off the ballot. Absolutely. Uh, and then they stand up and they say, we're so popular, and that's why no one wants to run against me. <laughs> you knock them all off so they couldn't run. Yes. Uh, and there's a, there seems to be at the root of it a lack of education on how to file your petitions correctly or how to, you know, to maneuver, you know, the Queens County Board of Elections or any Board of Elections. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I assume your answer to much of those isms that take place is to organize and to educate people about how to do it correctly. Yes, and also... The, I mean, you need money, and so you have to figure out what that means, and you need to participate. People need to participate in reorganizing what the political process is all about. So, I don't know, 20, 15 years ago, there was a movement around term limits, and people all over this country voted in support of term limits. It was funded um, by groups of people who had money and were able to do that. And one of the statements that the voters were making is that we don't think that it should be the case that people get in office and they stay there for 30 years, no matter what it is that they're accomplishing, and that other people can't get on the ballot and run against them. So if you have term limits, one of the things that that does is open up new possibilities. Um, there There are so many reforms. I support um, a process that would take the parties out of the actual elections. And what I mean by that is that right now there are primaries in Queens and in New York City and other places. In the primaries, the only people who can vote are Democrats. In New York, there's like a million independents and probably a million Republicans uh, in New York City. So we're locked out of the primary system, but because how the system works, whoever wins in the primary has not a shot at winning in the general election. I mean, will we'll win in the general election. If you lose in the primary, you don't have a shot. So there's this thing that we've been supporting called open primaries, where in September, everybody's put on the ballot who's running for office, everybody, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, Independents, Green Party, whomever, and the top two winners are who go on to the uh, general election. If we had a system like that and it was passed in California maybe three, four years ago, more people come out and vote and the elected officials, the politicians are forced to be more responsive because they can't automatically depend on a system that guarantees for the most part that they're going to win. They have to say smarter things to the community. They have to be um, responsive in ways that talk about achieving things and that lead to some changes. But right now, the way the system is set up, it's very, very difficult to penetrate it. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your relationship with Al Sharpton. I was actually doing some research. Uh, and how would you describe your relationship? <laughs> and I say that because uh, there was an, uh, an article mentioned that when he ran the United States Senate, uh, he ran as a Democrat and then distanced himself from you and Fred Newman. Um, but then I saw that in 2010 you spoke at the National Action Network Education Panel. So describe your sort of ebbs and flows with Mr. Sharpton. Mm-hmm. First of all, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Reverend Sharpton. We have disagreements. We've had great fights over the years, but we've maintained a relationship. I met him um, in I don't know, the early 80s on lines where we were picketing something or the other. And we worked very closely for many years after that. And I was hoping that when he got into politics, I was interested in his becoming an independent. He decided he wanted to go the route of the Democratic Party. And that caused some friction between us. Um, In some ways, my experience of it was that he distanced himself. Now, I think that's the real experience. He may have another. But I also have 
a tremendous amount of respect for him. I I was in Bensonhurst when we used to go out there. We took buses a lot. Um, Fred Newman and I brought a lot of white people because we didn't want the black community to go out there by itself um, during the death of, oh, God, this young man who went out there to look at a car and they killed him, and I'll remember his name in a moment, Yusef Hawkins. <laughs> and I was there when he was stabbed. I've been on many, many marches, and I think one of the reasons why there weren't a lot of um, uh, so-called riots, even though I don't think that they are riots, but people coming out and expressing their upsetness, um, we didn't have a lot of that here relative to Eric Gardner because we've built and Sharpton has led an opportunity for people to come out in the thousands and express their anger and upsetness in ways that don't further harm the community. And so, you know, again, we have differences. Um, I'm going to speak at the National, actually, at the National Action Network, his uh, celebration of his birthday um, in a couple of weeks. Um, I think he's an important figure in black politics. Right. And what did he think when you, I'm sure you spoke to him about potentially him distancing himself from you. What did he think? What did he say? Well, we, you know, we, I did, I've always been pretty outspoken. (laughs) So I've done a number of things. I, uh, you know, I've written articles that I've gotten published in the AM News. We, you know, and then we sort of look at each other and then we keep going. We, it's just sort of been both of us are grown ups. We're on different roads. We I think both have a passion and concern for what happens in the black community and in the country. And so mm-hmm. that takes us a long way. Yeah. Uh I wanna get your thoughts on, on how some other people are doing politically. Uh just because I think it's great to get your your thoughts. You and Bertha Lewis are people that you can interview and you don't really have to say much because you, you kind of carry uh, the interview and that's great. Uh, for an interviewer, <laughs> that's wonderful. You just let you go. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on how you feel uh, that uh, Mayor de Blasio is doing so far. Oh, God. Um, how do I think he's doing? I mean, I have – he's – I have a lot of – different feelings about this, and I think it's mostly, I mean, I think he's doing as well as most people do um, relative to party politics. The difference that I have with him, which is pretty um, strong, has to do not, it's not personal as much as it is part of the uh, partisanship of political, you know, parties and the Democratic Party, is I think there are lots of things happening in New York City that even though he's a progressive and a liberal, that he's not attending to in ways that I think could be very important, would be very important to our communities. Um, Last week, for example, there was a report that in 90 schools, in New York City, not one black or Latino kid passed the statewide test. Now, from where I sit, that's a crisis. (laughs) Um, I think people should be as much on the streets marching in opposition to this, and I hope that the young people come out, and I would support them 100%. This is a crisis. We should be looking at that and trying to determine what's going on that this isn't happening. I've spent the last 30 years, in addition to politics, creating after-school programs for young people in inner-city communities. I'm in five cities. My headquarters is here in New York. And one of the things that I think is so critical to young people's development is outside-of-school experiences, after-school experiences. We hear all of this talk about the differences in performance, um, achievement, Uh, between white middle-class kids and black and Latino poor kids. But I don't think it's about achievement. I think the difference has to do with the fact that white middle-class kids, they don't have bigger brains. What they have is bigger lives. They are connected to the mainstream. They don't live like 100 miles away from, you know, downtown Manhattan. 
they are included. Their schools are much, much better, even the ones that are public schools that are predominantly white and Asian. And so what we have to do is to impact on the experiences that our kids have, and one of the ways that you can do it is through quality after school. No one's talking about, to me, this is like a tragedy, and there are also innovative ways, the failure that I referenced, and there are also innovative ways to engage that. But I can barely, you know, people will come. I have this wonderful center. We have thousands of kids in our programs. I've been doing this for 30 years. (laughs) People will sort of come, but they won't engage in a serious conversation about what are innovative ways to reorganize the failing that's going on in the school system in this country in communities of color. We've made discoveries that are very, very, very important relative to this, but nobody wants to talk about it. And I I just find that um, truly, truly problematic. I also, I mean, de Blasio has done a lot of work um, on creating kindergartens, and I love kindergartners. I like little kids. I like big, big kids. But the reality is that all the the thesis on which this is based is that if you go to, if you get good early education, then no matter how crappy everything is after kindergarten, <laughs> you're going to be able to make it through the schools. That's absurd and it's ridiculous. We need great kindergartens, but we need great opportunities for youth. We need to have young people have something to do so that they're inspired, they're having fun, it's not tedious, it's not remedial. And a lot, that's not what our kids are given. Even the after-school programs are boring, the kids cut down. So there are all these things to be spoken about, to be debated, dialogued. If you're not in the inner political circle, these people want no part of it. And I think that that's a sin and it's an outrage and it's something that we have to change at the grassroots. Yeah, and to that end, do you have an ear with de Blasio or his administration, anyone a part of it? Um, not really. I mean, we've, you know, he came to my center before he got elected, uh, maybe even before he was running. Um, he knows who I am. <laughs> he knows what we're doing. But people are so caught up in these battles around the teachers' union, I think fights over charter versus non-charter schools. I think our kids should have every choice in the world. Um, I don't particularly like the way charters have been set up, but you do need choices. And one of the things that charter schools do is they force, or they should force, if we weren't doing this stupid fight, the public schools to get better because that's what competition does. So, you know, there's a lot of dialogue um, in the city, but it's very difficult to influence in innovative ways um, a lot of these so-called bureaucracies because so many decisions aren't made on the basis of what's best for the community um, or the kids. It has a lot to do with um, all these, you know, intertwined relationships, political relationships, paybacks, so on and so forth. But the only people who are going to change that, in my opinion, is going to be, you know, the people in our community because the politicians are never going to give it up. So I right. hope that's an answer. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's that's a great answer. Speaking of relationships, I'm curious to get your take. Do you understand why people criticized your association with uh, your association with former Mayor Michael Bloomberg? Because they're silly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I and also because they're competitive in some particular ways. The thing about Michael Bloomberg, first of all, he ran for three terms. I supported term limits, so I don't agree how he got elected in his third term, but that's a whole other story. The second time Bloomberg ran, he both times he ran um, as a, a Republican and an independent. The Democratic primary would never have let him in because he's not an insider. He got, in 2005... 47% of the vote, 50% of the vote on the Independence Party ticket, which I am one of the leaders of in downstate New York. We were like so 
thrilled because part of what we were teaching people is that if you want these politicians to respond to you, you have to stop voting for the same kind of people and you have to exert your independence. So I went to bed that night thinking I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be on the front page of the newspaper. Not one newspaper in New York City. The Daily News, the Post, the New York Times, none of them ever acknowledged that the black community had stepped out of this niche of the Democratic Party and gave another candidate um, 50% of the vote. And that reason, the reason why people do that is because people want new things to vote for. They want to support things that are growing. And, you know, he had, he was, I think he did a lot for New York City. I think he knew how to govern. Um, I didn't agree with everything he did or how he did everything, but I was thrilled that he was mayor of New York City. We got to, it sort of opened up the partisan cloud and let some new things happen. And I was able to do a lot of good things relative to things that I was trying to um, build. Uh, And do you continue your relationship with him now? Um, we We have a relationship of sorts. I'm not doing it per se, but there are these efforts around the country to open up the primary system that I was talking about, and Jacqueline Salet, who um, I've worked with for three decades, who's president of this thing called um, independentvoting.org, I know she's working with him in different states to create nonpartisan elections, um, the um, top three thing that I was speaking about earlier, so yes. And a lot, even though a lot of my, a lot of Democrats like me, um, uh, tons of them at the community level, <laughs> but even I have relationship with, relationships with different Democratic politicians, but they would have blocked my being able, for example, to get bonds. This is not money. These are bonds that you can get people to invest in in order to purchase the building that we have on 42nd Street in Manhattan. The people who were on the board um, in one of the votes, all of whom were Democrats with the exception of Bloomberg's people, voted in opposition to this. And these are well-known people because they think the city belongs to them because they're anti whatever it is that they're anti, but they would have been hurting the kids. They were hurting the kids. But that vote made a big, big difference. So part of what Bloomberg brought to the city, he sort of broke open some of this club-like, alienated, isolated, if you're not, you know, part of my clique kind of politics that dominates here so often. Right. Uh, Moving on to President Obama in his last term. What do you think he has done or how do you think he has done? I think the most important thing, I think it was very important that Obama won the presidency in 2008. Um, It was a very moving and important moment, historical moment in this country, and we should do it again if we had the opportunity to elect the first black president. I think Obama's problem is that instead of, basically when he got to, D.C. after winning the election in 08, I think Nancy Pelosi took him off into a corner and basically said, that might have been your election, but this is our party. And he stepped into a machinery that he, I mean, was run by. This is my humble opinion. (laughs) I think if he had been able to walk out of the White House and say, at a press conference to the people of this country, I need for you, who gave him his vote, the biggest vote were blacks, independents, he got 40% of the independent vote in 2008, and young people. And if he had said to them, I need for you to get down here, keep an eye on this situation, because the only way that I'm going to be able to govern based on why it is that you voted for me is that I have the support of the people at the grassroots. And for whatever reason, he has not been able to do that. I think he gave, like, powerful speeches around poverty, around racism in the first election. At the inauguration of the second election, he and Michelle Obama both were talking about um, middle-class people and middle-class values. Now, I don't have anything 
against people becoming middle class, but middle class people didn't become middle class because they had middle class values. They have jobs and they had opportunities that the poor people in our community don't have because we really haven't been totally integrated as a people into American society. Yeah. Uh, do you think that more Democrats tend to think like you without wanting to admit it? I think that's being generous. <laughs> I, I don't. I think if they think like me, they should act like me. <laughs> What's keeping them from doing it? I mean, I. Well, it's very. I'm, I am very controversial. I mean, I get attacked for things I've never done, thought about, whatever. But so so did Dr. King. So does anybody who stands up and says, this is what we have to do in order to grow and develop our community and make it, you know, a force, not just in politics, but in the running of America. So I, you know, I hear you, and um, some of my best friends are really Democrats, but if people want to change what's going on. We have to do something that's going to be different from what we normally do. One of my, I work with teenagers a lot, and I deal a lot with, this, with the subjectivity of poverty because people in our community act like, you know, there is in poverty. Poor people are so humiliated. They live in poor communities, but they've been taught that they're not supposed to say that they're poor. I think that when you're suffering, you say at the top of your lungs whatever it is that you are. And I have these kids who are coming in, more and more people going into shelters. This young man said to me two weeks ago, he came home from school, he opened the refrigerator, there wasn't enough food in there for his, him and his little sister. He decided not to eat so his sister could eat when she came home. He was hungry for the rest of the evening and the next day. He didn't say anything to his mother because he knew she was doing the best that she could. Like, what are we doing? I This is what our kids are like. And they walk around with a whole host of stuff that's going on that they have no understanding of. And we're not addressing that in ways that could make a difference. I think that we have to deal with this level of poverty and we have to teach poor people to march in the middle of the streets and yell it at the top of their lungs because it's not a personal failing as they are taught. It is a social failure and a political one. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's a very good point. And uh, I had a friend who studied social work and she, we were out having lunch one day in the city and she said, you know what? I want you to see how the city in particular, treats people who are, quote-unquote, living in poverty. And we came up to uh, a, a social services office in Harlem, yes. and the first thing we saw when we walked in was <laughs> a huge line, turnabout, yes. four or five lines. And all the people, there was so much overflow that they had people standing on the side of the wall on the other side of the room. And that is how it goes all throughout social services. There were just long lines everywhere. And she said, if you look at this, what do you think? Well, I said to myself, I have a bad back. I can't stand on the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was being facetious, of course. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but from her perspective, it was, this is how you treat it if you are poor and you need help. You have to, the first thing you need to do is you need to take off hours from work all the day if you have the fortune ability and then wait all day online. Why? Yes. Well, because the system doesn't work. And Bill Clinton, by the way, in cutting welfare, um, and people have been getting welfare in this country in some form or the other. I mean, the white immigrants got it um, years ago. It's not like we invented welfare. But in cutting welfare and not really coming up with jobs for people to do, he added to the levels of poverty in this country way, way beyond anything that we've seen in a very long time. And people didn't challenge that. That and I'm not I'm talking about the Democratic Party, his folks <laughs> and others, they didn't go up against that. And now we see it in so many forms in so many ways. And it's it's a very it's a hard situation and people don't really talk about that. The schools are poor. The schools I think that there are lots of teachers out there who care deeply about 
the kids and then some who don't. But the schools aren't working. I have kids who take Regents tests in chemistry, but they've never seen a chemistry book. So there's all this hype about if you do the right thing and, you you know, you do it in the right way and if you aren't in the streets and blah, 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 you can be anything you want. But what, on what planet? So I think we have a responsibility of both radically accepting what the world is like for people in our communities, for the black communities, and Latino communities, there are lots of white people who are poor. I always tell them that the deal that they made with this country is at least they're not black, but they're still poor. <laughs> it's right. like it's a mess, and you almost can't talk about it. And when you, I, I mean, even universities, when they come up with plans for helping black people, a lot of what they come up with, it's absurd because what we really yeah. have to do is do something about the actual poverty. And the fact that our yeah. kids aren't being taught. And this, for me, was the major reason why I, I, I don't know if you know, but I was elected to office when I was 19 uh, and oh. served five years on the Board of Education in New York. Um, this was upstate in Orange County. Uh, even though it was a very uh, Caucasian county, I was in an in inner city. Mm-hmm. I represented about 7,000 kids and about 75% of them were minority. Mm-hmm. And the ability to affect legislation was the only reason that I felt that my winning that election meant something. Mm-hmm. Because I remember we got a call in the office once, and no one in the office spoke Spanish. And this lady was trying to get information on one of the questions on the propositions on the ballot. And we couldn't explain it to her. And so at one point, the secretary said, well, I might as well just hang up on her because, I, I mean, I, I don't know what else to do. And I said, no, wait a second. Let me see if we can go get someone to translate. Turns out, I said to myself, why isn't it that we can have the, why we cannot have these ballots printed in English and in Spanish? <laughs> right. right next to each other. Yeah. And I, people looked at me and, you know, they said, <laughs> that's crazy. We can't do that. And I'm going, what's so crazy? About, I mean, to me, it made perfect sense. <laughs> Yes. Because you've got you've got a, a majority a majority Hispanic community. They can't read the ballot propositions. They don't probably even know what they're voting on. I mean, if, if they knew right. that the question was there, they probably don't know. And so I said, it makes sense. We should have it in English, and then right underneath, we should put it right in Spanish. And I can't tell you the heck, but I tell you what I did. I brought it up as a discussion item on the floor, and we <laughs> talked about it, and we debated about it, and. It was probably the first time that we had actually had a discussion about that because no one else would have thought about doing it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the compromise was we can do it in Spanish, but we also have to do it in Italian. <laughs> because that somehow made it all possible for us to do it. It made it all right to do, even though it made it all right the to Ita- do it. Italian migration had happened in the ni- early 1900s, yes. And they had no problem with the ballot. They could read everything fine. I mean, it wasn't yes. that. So that yes. is how some of the board members decided they were going to do it. We eventually well, at least it got done. That. <laughs> and, we, and we eventually rejected it because I had enough of a majority to be able to get it in without it. But the mm-hmm. thing is, it just made, and we were, one of the, we were certainly one of the first school districts in the state to do it, but not in the mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had been done before. But the ability as an elected official just to even say, even if we can discuss it, because you bring some level of authority when you say, hey, I want to have something brought up, or you can have a press conference or send out a press release. And so when I go into social services and I see those long lines, I'm going, someone somewhere should stand up and just say, we shouldn't have all these lines. There needs to be yeah. a better way to automate this or, or make it electronic. Or and I'm going, what are we doing? If you try to get into a homeless shelter... You have to physically show up in person to do it. Why? Yeah. Yes. You know, and, and so there are all going, these rules. People are treated, I mean, like they're, you know, second-class citizens. You have to do this. You can't do that. You have to be there by certain – it's like – and it's just – it's too upsetting. Here in New York City, the other thing that they're doing, this is something that de Blasio is allowing to happen that I really don't like, <laughs> is that they're supposedly um, in the midst of – developing the entire city, they're going to build supposedly affordable houses on open um, areas in the projects. So parking lots and, you know, where people usually sit around on benches. 
and they're going to put affordable housing there. And affordable means $60,000 a year, which is nothing, but most people in the projects don't make that level of money. And so it obviously is a way to get rid of the people who are in the projects because they're not going to move middle-class people into those, that, those housing and allow poor people to live that close to them. And so there are all these things that, that um, they're like make-believe moves, and the political people won't oppose them. My phone's ringing off the hook. Um, people in the housing projects might be poor, but they're not stupid. And what they feel, which is true, is that they're getting squeezed out. And that's that to me what a political leader, elected or not, those are the issues that you have to speak to, which is the quality of life for everybody in this city, state, and country. And I don't, whatever holds people back from doing that, if it's a political organization, then they shouldn't be part of it. However, again, the demand for that is, it just will come from the bottom up. Right. Um, I want to talk about the organization that you are part of. So I, I don't want to take too much of your time. I probably already have already. No, I loved um, it. <laughs> uh, but but I, but I want to uh, kind of get a list of the organizations that you were part of and the work that you do and how people can find out about it. Okay. I am um, the co-founder of the All-Stars Project, which is a 30-year after-school um, program for young people. We're in My headquarters is in Manhattan. We're in Newark, where we have a state-of-the-art building, both in Manhattan and New York. We're also in Chicago, the Bay Area, we just went to Dallas last year, and we're um, just starting up in Bridgeport. And um, I don't know, my phone number is 212-356-8400 for people who are interested in learning more about that. The other thing is that um, we had a shooting in 2006, a police killing of Sean Bell. This was the 50 shots that people talked about all over the country this young man was at a party the night before he got married was to get married and um i went to all of the marches um and newman and i sat down at some point the following week and started to talk about what it would mean to impact on the relationship between police officers and teenagers in the city given that if you ask the communities who's responsible for violence 50% would say the teenagers, and the other 50% say the cops, yes. So I started, I knew a lot of cops because I had met them on, um, you know, in my through my activism. And um, I brought together, I began to bring together groups of police officers and young people. And we have, and we believe that if people can do new performances, whether they can think about them or not, that they can have an experience of the other that they don't normally have. So even bringing them in the room together, having them sit cop kid, cop kid, was like a major advance. And then I created a workshop um, where they do skits together, they do all these crazy things, and then they sit down and have a conversation. And I've done over 100 workshops with um, about 2,500 cops and kids, and in 2011 created a partnership with the NYPD, uh, Bratton has continued the programs and allowed for new things to happen. Uh, we did a presentation of this on the stage at the Apollo in July um, because I do a presentation to all the graduating classes twice a year. And just this past um, Sunday, I was in the African American Day Parade last last week, and I decided with all of the um, angst and upsetness that people had about Eric Gardner and what was happening in Ferguson, I wanted to show people that we had to build relationships between the community and the police. And I organized um, about, I don't know, 15 cops, 15 kids, and then about 50 people in the community to march with us. And it was unbelievably strongly and positively responded to by the people of Harlem. And I think that's how I ended up on this call because someone saw me there <laughs> and was wondering I, what we I, were doing. I was there. Uh, I saw you there, but I had um, I had called you prior. Uh, oh, you've been okay. on my radar for a very long time. 
Um, and I had called you, I don't, it was a few months ago, I think, definitely sometime, I think, last year, so several months ago. Uh, and we at that, <laughs> yeah, and at that time, my voicemail message, which is a little fancier than it is now, uh, and you had called me back and said, oh, what a message. I don't know if you remember that. Uh-huh. Um, it, and it, I mean, I, I, I was talking, I, I mean, I had, it was something crazy. Like if you could capitulate your name and number, something really wacky. Um, I, I copied from someone else, and uh, it, 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 turned, it, it turned out to cost me a new job opportunity, so I had to get rid of that. <laughs> and people left the message. They said, we don't want to work with those guys. So they, you know, that was that. Um, well, I was so excited to do that march because one of the things that I've earned in this city is the respect and trust of people in our communities. And to me, that's worth every hardship, every attack, every everything <laughs> that I've had to go through over the last three decades. Um, they trust that I and my organization has their best, best interests at heart, and they'll go new places with me. And um, they did that on Sunday. It was very, very touching. Yeah. Now, did you do work in Southeast Queens? In where? Southeast Queens. Yes, I do work all over. Actually, the first workshop I did, I did in Jamaica. But I do workshops at the PA, there's a PAL center um, that has youth programs. I do a lot of workshops. It's in Jamaica, ongoingly. And I have, I mean, I also I have free classes for all my youth programs are free. And then I have free classes for adults. I created this um, thing called UX, which is University X. Um, and I basically have had 5,000 since 2010, 5,000 people, 80% of them adults, come and take classes and basically do some things outside of their comfort zone and leave their areas <laughs> and come into Manhattan and develop and it's been wonderful so people um should come to the all-stars project and sign up yeah and and we want to promote that uh on the link as well and i hope um i've i've been i've been asked to help with a community action group in southeast queens um to try to be somewhat of an educational vessel to help educate people about different community organizations how they can get involved uh, how they can avoid getting knocked off the ballot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so hopefully, you know, we can have you come out and, and help be a part of the, the conversation or the discussions as we try to do some community work. I would love to. And there are ways in which um, there are discoveries, uh, intellectual discoveries, academic discoveries, that have to do with how it is that we can help our kids grow and the relationship between um, – being connected to the mainstream, feeling like part of the world that influences and reorganizes how smart you are. They're like lots of things. And I would love to have the community be able to see this so they can make decisions about putting some pressure on the people who keep doing things in ways that don't change where we are in the academic and educational world and then blame the parents. My mother wasn't a teacher. She made it possible for me to eat. <laughs> and so all this blaming that goes to parents relative to what their kids are doing or not doing, it's just it's an abomination. Mm, very well said. Well, well, we need to have a part two of this conversation at some point. Uh, I would love to. Hopefully not too far in the future, but I, I always respect it. And there are certain people that, that I, I think uh, are contributing to the, the the consciousness of what we all should be thinking about. You know, you, Bertha Lewis, a lot of other people in New York City. But uh, I, I always had a great deal of respect for for your input, particularly because at, I, I think at your core, you, you you really just don't give a darn. I mean, you're happy to say <laughs> what you say and how you feel. Uh, and I think that more people should be that way, and if people don't like it, then too bad. Yes. So you're located in New York? I am. Uh, oh, okay. I didn't York, quite know. Uh, I, yeah, I, I was in Orange County, New York, and then I came down and got my master's degree in media studies from the new school, uh, which ended up branding me without me knowing it. Um, ah. Because whenever I would, I would go to apply for jobs, you know, studying media was one thing, but getting it from the new school, I mean, you know, they thought that 
I was going to come in there and, and you know and, and try to you know recite Karl Marx or something on air, um, <laughs> and uh, you know that ended up causing some some friction. But uh, ended up you know getting through that, and now you know I spent some time in Harlem. I lived in Harlem, and you know now I'm doing more work in Queens. I'm really That's getting terrific. back in there. Uh, so you know I think it's important for me to go where I think I can contribute something. Uh, and Harlem just really didn't need me. I mean, you know, I felt like in Southeast Queens, there, there was more issues. I, I moderated a debate not too long ago for the state, can- state Senate candidates, Malcolm Smith, Leroy Conry, mm-hmm. and the other can- contender. And my first mm-hmm. question was, when it comes to policy issues, where do either of you disagree from one another? Mm-hmm. Great question. And, not, and neither of them, none of them can answer the question. They all, they all admitted that we had to debate first before we can answer that question. And so instead of saying, before we came to this debate, I did my research, Leroy Conley, you served in the city council for 20 years, you took several policies that I disagree with, or you know, Senator Smith, you mm-hmm. voted for this or that and that. They had no idea where well, they Well, because people don't do policy. Different. Yes, they, politics and policy isn't the same. There, it's like a, it's a political game, and it's limited in terms of what it delivers in terms of policy and any kind of development, and that's unfortunate, which is why we need to do away with parties. Can I just say something that's coming up that I want to invite people to? Please. Um, On Thursday, October 23rd, at 6 p.m. in Harlem, I'm going to have an event um, that talks about expanding our democracy and the relationship between the crises um, and poverty of our communities and the, the actually the issue of policy and nonpartisan politics. So it's going to be much more sexy and interesting. I'm going to give a great talk. <laughs> but um, again? it's Thursday, October 23rd. It's at um, uh, Beth First AME Church, Bethel Church in Harlem. But I'm going to give you my number. Can I say that? Sure. Two one two nine six two one six nine nine two one two nine six two one six nine nine um and I'm expecting like a couple of hundred people so I would love for people to come and if you're available it would be great for you to come. Yeah I will I will be there. Okay there's nothing on my calendar and if there's something that pops up I'll just cancel it. Oh terrific. Yeah I want to be there. So I, I will be there. Um okay. and, tell me your uh, whole name uh, Roy Paul, R-O-Y, last name P-A-U-L. Oh, great. Oh, okay. That's what I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, so, Dr. Lenora Fulani, it, it was such uh, an honor and a pleasure to speak with you this evening. Uh, we, we do need to schedule a second part with you at some point. Uh, and, uh, you know, this can rival Oprah's life class. <laughs> I hope so. Yano <laughs> <laughs> Van Zandt has nothing on you. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, so yeah. thank you so much. And for those who want more information, please check out Dr. Lenora Solani at the All Source Project. Uh, and we will send you the links of the organization and as well as a plug for the October 23rd event. Yes, and everybody's invited in for a tour. Everybody's invited for a tour of the All Source Project. They're going to love it. So on 42nd Street between 10th and 11th. All right, and and book your tour of the All Stars Project. Yes. All right, thank you so much, Doctor, and we'll be in touch, and and I'll see you on the 23rd of October. Okay, and you take care. You too. Good night. Bye bye.